people that aren't elite athletes don't really have the luxury of trial and error because that motivation to change is so fragile that you know if you're starting out on a weight loss journey and you've finally found the motivation to start doing some exercise you finally found the motivation to start changing your dietary habits if you don't see results pretty soon you're not going to go well it just wasn't the right way for me I'll, I'll pivot to this other method yeah, exactly. you just quit you just quit welcome to the high performance health podcast with your host angela foster the show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind body and lifestyle I'm really excited to bring you today's podcast episode. Back in February, before we entered into lockdown, I visited DNA Fit's headquarters to talk to them about their DNA test and how they are using DNA to transform results in sport, weight loss and preventative health. In this interview, I sit down with Andrew Steele, former GB Olympic medal holder, founding member of DNA Fit and head of product. Andrew sadly missed out on his place at the London 2012 Olympics because he followed the then best perceived training advice from his coach, which was ill-suited to his own personal genetics. Had Andrew known what he knows today about his genetics from a simple 60-second mouth swab, his future could have been very different. In this episode, Andrew and I talk about how DNA testing is transforming the future of sport and how perhaps more importantly, it's helping everyday people like you and me that want to change some aspect of their fitness, nutrition, sleep or lifestyle to optimise their health, but don't know where to start. I've personally worked with DNA Fit for a number of years and their range of tests are revolutionising the fitness and nutrition industry, giving you back control of your health. If you've wondered whether or not to do a DNA test or how safe your data is, then this episode is for you as Andrew and I take a deep dive into all things DNA and why your genes are not your destiny. It's the epigenetics, i.e. the expression of your genes, that makes the difference to your health and wellness outcomes and longevity, and we explain how you can take control of yours. Make sure you listen to the end as I have a very special discount for listeners of this podcast on any DNA testing package. So I'm really excited to be here at DNA Fit HQ with Andrew Steele, who's one of the founding members of DNA Fit um, and also head of product. Welcome, Andrew. Great to be here. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, it's amazing to have you. He's also a former Olympian, 400 meter athlete. Yes. yes. So um, I guess actually that's a really good place to start because I think I've looked at a lot of different DNA tests mm. um, over the years. And one of the most unique things about your product is the way that you're able to analyze and give really meaningful data that people can use on things like their power, their endurance ratios, and now their strength, which is a new mm, thing that mm -hmm. you're testing for. Can you explain a bit more about that? So, I mean, so, so there's, I guess there's two parts. Of that. There's one, there's like how I ended up here from, from, from the Olympics. And, and yeah. to, there's a, I have a very personal story and how I ended up working with genetics right, from that. And it, I'll, I'll probably, I'll tell you a little bit about that because it gives some context as to how we could use, I guess, this in everyday lives for everyone else. Right? So, sure. so I was a, I was a 400 meter runner um, professionally, so I did that for about 15 years of my life. Um, competed at every level from, from Olympic Games, World Championships, European Championships, Commonwealth Games, and so on. Um, and during that time, I learned a lot about kind of what worked for me and what didn't. Of course, it was my job, you know, I, I, by trial and error, I would always find sort of that didn't work for me. Let's reassess what can we change, how can we improve. That's a sports person's job. Um, but if, have you ever run a 400 meters? 
Oh, right, yeah, but only in my, <laughs> in my free time, not competitively. What, what do you think of it then? What's your impression of it? I've got I, a really well, in terms, see, I think it's hard to gauge for me because it's quite long. Yes. Whereas if you're going to do a short sprint, it's fun and you can go all out and leave nothing in the That's tank. Right, but yeah. I think 400s, personally, as a complete amateur, it's hard to measure. I don't know whether you that's found it. that. So that's so. what I wanted. That's what I wanted to hear. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought. So, so basically, there's it's a sprint event, the 400 meters. Yeah. And if any of your listeners have ever had the misfortune of doing so, they'll know this story the same. But it's a very long sprint. Yeah. So you have to be able to balance kind of elite power ability with elite endurance ability at the same time. So, mm. But ultimately, it is a power event. It's a sprint event. Now, at the top level, you can um, you can train sort of one of two ways for that. You can train like a sprinter who does lots of power stuff and then adds some endurance on top, sort of a little bit extra. Or you can do it the other way, which is you train like a middle distance athlete and then you add some sprint training on top. Okay. So you can come at it from the short end or the, the long end, basically. And at the top level, everybody comes at it from the short end. Like, so if they're all sort of 200 meter runners with some endurance ability, as opposed to 800 meter runners with some sprint ability. Now, I did quite well in my career. Um, in the first Olympiad of my career, which was to the Beijing Olympic Games, um, I ended up making the semi-final in the individual event. I ran under 45 seconds for the 400, which is a big benchmark. And I actually, bizarre, in a bizarre way, won a medal in the Beijing 4x400m. So I finished fourth at the time, but then in 2017 that was upgraded to third when the Russians were retrospectively oh, yeah. disqualified for doping. So, so I actually got an Olympic medal nine Result years after I ran this. It was great. <laughs> so, so, but interestingly, in my, my career, I sort of had some success and that success came at Beijing and then I had a lot of not very success <laughs> following that so which must it, have been frustrating it will and and you know so 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 I mean I'll tell you a slight bit more detail but basically in the run-up to Beijing I trained in the old-fashioned way I'm from Manchester I had a really old-school northern coach who smoked 40 cigarettes a day and just <laughs> yeah we'll get into more mileage lads we'll go you know, we'll go run on the Mersey we'll, so we basically we just run and we do a lot of that endurance stuff and it worked quite well for me I won an Olympic medal run 44 seconds yeah. and after Beijing we had four years to go till London 2012 like the biggest possible occasion for a UK Olympic athlete right the home Olympic Games in four years I was already an Olympian, had a great chance. I was thinking, right, I'll get to London, win an individual medal, retire, play charity golf tournaments, go and question the sport all the time, do the classic sort of sportsman's trajectory. And I had a meeting with um, everyone in my journey, basically. So my coach, my, the people that paid my bills at British Athletics, you know, my performance director, my physio, etc., as a review to say, how do we get you from here in 2008 to individual medal in 2012? And I needed to get about half a second quicker. So literally like that much quicker, which sounds easy, but it, it's quite it's hard. hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I had to go from about 44.9 to about 44.4 to have a chance, right? And um, they said, well, look, everybody else at the top level trains this way they're all sprinters first and you're pretty weak at the sprint part of the race but you're strong at the end so to be honest the way you train's a bit old-fashioned you know the current consensus thinking on the best way to train for 400 is the other way so we should change you know and it's presentable it's good advice you know sort of actually everyone else does it this way plus you need to get something extra so you should probably do that too and we switched to this sort of sprint method this like short power based training for the next four years um, and ultimately it didn't work so I went from number one in the UK in 2008 over the next four years I had a few problems where my times just didn't really progress in fact they went a little bit backwards and actually on the day of selection in 2012 I was number seven in the UK 
and they only take the top six to the Olympic Games. Oh, so I actually shit. missed out on this thing. It was like, it was a horrendous experience. Oh my like, goodness, I it, bet. It was just like, a, it was like a death in the family yeah. almost, you know, it was like a huge period of mourning. Just everything I'd ever been defined yeah. by was like the pinnacle of that was in London 2012, right? Everyone I knew, everything everyone had ever known of me, my whole life was about the fact that, yeah, he's an Olympic athlete, you know, he'll be really good, yeah, yeah. And then London 2012 comes, and I wasn't even on the team. It was like and it was it's brutal. In country, oh, it was brutal. It was so. It was yes. so bad. I, and my family had a caravan in the late this year. I just went and lived there on my own for like three months, and just like <laughs> like Rocky. Or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, anyway, when the dust had settled, I was trying to look at that and say, well, you know, what happened there? What went wrong? Like, and I was like, you know what? The old-fashioned way is the way that worked better for me. I found that out through sort of concise trial and error four years to Beijing four years to London in 2012 and it turns out that the way which is less common nowadays looked like it was more effective for me and the more common way the average advice was less effective for me um, and part of that sort of you know stuck in my head and I thought well I'm going to go back to the old way back to the endurance and at the same time just by random chance, I received a swab in the post. I was in Arizona on a training camp and it was our founder, CEO, Avi, who just started the business and was looking for feedback from sports people on how their DNA looked and what they thought of this thing, basically. Okay. And, um, and I got this report and there was a number of things that spoke really personally to me, but one of those was, and you will have come across this uh, looking at this, is there's a gene called ACTN3. It's one of the most published, one of the most researched genes around exercise response, sports performance, and especially with its role in power or sprint ability. Mm -hmm. So, and with this gene, you can have one of three versions, the, the CC version, the CT version, or the TT. So basically two copies of the C, two copies of the T, or one of each, depending on what you inherited from mum and dad. And um, the C version is really heavily overrepresented in elite level sprinters. So 99% of Olympic level sprinters have the C version. It's really like every, basically every Olympic level sprinter has they the C version. It. And I don't have it. I mean, the, that 1%, I mean, the absolute anomaly. And the reason that's important is the C versions you've come, probably come across is that um, if you give people with the C uh, genotype of this gene, um, short, fast, high intensity sprint activity. That C version is really efficient at pumping out the protein which helps synthesize or build fast switch muscle fibers, sprinters muscle fibers. So if I was in a group of 10 elite sprinters and we all did really short, high intensity sprint workouts, the rate at which they're potentially growing sprinters muscle fiber, which was the point of the session, is gonna be dramatically above what I could do from the same impetus. And that just got me thinking, I was like, okay, there's that, there's a few other factors. I was like, well, maybe that's one of the reasons why this average advice for me was not applicable because I'm not really the average mm. when it comes to this group of people. And even at the top level, people are confused. People don't know the best way to do something, even at that elite level. And that really got us thinking about, you know, for everybody else who doesn't have a team of experts, and like super high level coaches, nutritionists, physiologists, etc., working for them, and they don't have such a clear goal as something really specific as running 400 meters faster than someone else, how could this potentially help like answer that question of like what what should I, what should I do? How do I lose weight? How do I get bigger? Yeah. And normally we consider, I guess like a lot of evidence sources. on my friend got massive and uh, he did this, so I'll try that. Or I read yeah, this in true. Men's Health recently, or mm. I saw this advice on how much vitamin D I need in the newspaper, 
but then you know they're really kind of hard to nail down and they change a lot there's evidence sources and people that aren't elite athletes don't really have the luxury of trial and error because that motivation to change is so fragile mm. that you know if you're starting out on a weight loss journey and you've finally found the motivation to start doing some exercise you finally found the motivation to start changing your dietary habits if you don't see results pretty soon you're not going to go well it just wasn't the right way for me i'll, I'll pivot to this other method no, exactly. you just quit you just quit you just stop yeah you know and so we're saying well how can we maybe give people just a, a little extra bit of data helps them navigate this sort of complex world of what's the best advice um, to try and break away just from giving average advice basically and that's where sort of dna fit came in um, specifically at that time just around so initially sort of it was focused on athletes or the average person so in terms not of quite not quite not quite um, sort of in between both so when we okay. first started we were sort of it was I guess at the early adopter level people that were had a really strong goal were really specifically like yeah I'm really into like this particular health goal which might be exercise related might be nutrition related but very quickly we realized that the demand and the use the utility was bigger at the absolute beginner level almost you know so those that really just i need to change i don't know where to start it's really confusing can someone give me some tool that might help me navigate this yeah. and that's where the demand came and that's where we grew so fitness and nutrition and then later a little bit about stress and sleep management as well um, for the everyday person as opposed to the weekend warrior who's really serious about something as opposed to the elite athlete of course we work in elite sport um, you know and with you know with a lot of coaches with trainers with dietitians but it's really the utility there is for the beginner or almost beginner who's got I've got a goal now I want to find out how to reach that for me and that's where that's yeah. where the utility really came in and the results are amazing. I mean, I've seen it with my own clients and also even on my own genetics, it's really, really interesting. Oh, so good. when you were talking about that with kind of body composition goals, for example, I know that I have a very strong kind of power and endurance potential much lower on the strength when I've been tested. Right, right. Yeah. And so for me, as soon as I do hit style workouts, I can literally just switch it on. I'll immediately go much leaner toned very quicker because you've got the kind of muscular endurance and cardiovascular because you're doing it mm. although it's for a shorter period of time and it's very power based mm. you might be doing lots of reps of something yeah and i'll just notice my body change and right. i have actually the ct of the oh, right, okay. so you're even so more equipped to be an olympic sprinter than me <laughs> <laughs> do you know what was funny is my, my husband actually was a 100 meter sprinter at school oh, no but way. was never able to take it further and i think his best time was something like 10.98 and when we tested him he doesn't have a CTA. Oh, right. So he was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, maybe that's why I couldn't get that okay, it's much really, faster. It's really it's rare at the elite level. So much so there was like a, there's been a scientific case study published on one Olympic level power athlete who didn't have it. Like it's, it's really rare, right? Um, yeah. But the message for me there is like, I won an Olympic medal at a sprint event, right? That was really good mm. <laughs> without blowing my own What would have happened if you'd taken it for a longer event and done 800 meters instead? But I don't would know. And, and the truth is, and maybe, but probably not because I didn't want to be. Yeah. And and this is the thing people need to and often I guess pop culture has led people to think of DNA as like destiny as what you can mm. or can't be or will or won't be and if you took it that way someone would have said don't bother being an Olympic sprinter you've not got any chance because of the statistical likelihood based on this gene but actually I won an Olympic medal Olympic sprint event so certainly it was the right decision yes, yeah. um, so it, it's a case of like you know preference 
lots of other factors, environment, my access to the track, a good coach, etc., all play as big, if not more, a role. But once you're in that, on that goal and you're on that path, how might you better optimize your route to that goal as opposed to change the goal? That's where this comes in, yes. as opposed to saying, yeah, because you've done this test now, you should be a tennis player. There's no evidence for that. There's mm. nothing. There's rather to say, well, you've got a goal. How might knowing a little bit more about yourself help reach that goal better? And that's where there was. So my route to success was quite unusual for a top level 400 meter runner. Similarly, an everyday person who wants to lose some weight or you know drop their body fat might not be um, applicable to give exactly the same advice which is currently on trend. Yes. You know, yeah. And it might be the old fashioned advice might be, oh, so on. So that's just the concept really. The overall idea is, we are always given average advice. That's a good start point. You know, if we look at exercise trends, if you'd ask someone, what exercise should I do to lose weight 30 years ago? They'd say, go for long, slow runs all the time. Go jogging. Mm. They wouldn't have said, do 20 minutes of super high intensity no, kettlebells, no. right? You know, and nowadays it would be completely opposite. Yeah. But neither is necessarily wrong. No, it's true. Yeah, so that's where we just come in. It's like, let's think about the individual first and then figure out yeah, how we, what the so. best advice is. And I can see that because with, with me, for example, if I do more endurance style stuff without utilizing my power-based genes, actually, I don't get the body composition results. Oh, really? Right. No, whereas yeah. if you stick my husband on the watt bike and he does lots of cardio, he suddenly go really lean. Okay, so again, yeah. it's very different and Look, very individual, isn't it? The way I always put it That's, is, imagine, imagine you know, you were in a, you trapped in a room for two years uh, with a bunch of people and you all ate the same food and did exactly the same activity in the same room. You'd still see individual differences mm. between people. And so when the environment's the same but the outcome would be different, we might have to think about what's that other factor and that's where we come is to shine a light just on that nature part of the nature nurture equation not to yes. change everything not to be like oh wow this means i should never do this but just say here's another piece of information to add into the picture basically yeah, yeah. how can you get that performance faster yeah. and it doesn't your research show that the performance outcomes are kind of something like three times as great if it's a genetically matched workout program yeah so, I mean, so we did a, a study um in 2016 in the journal biology of sport where we looked at um genetically personalizing uh, a resistance training program um but also doing that where some people were on a, what we call a genetically matched structure. So if they were high power, they had um, less reps per set, more sets, higher weights on the bar, for example. And if they were more endurance and they were matched, they had more reps per set, less total sets, less weight on the bar, higher volume, etc. But then we also did it where vice versa, you could be genetically mismatched. And they were both blinded, so they didn't know which group they were on. They didn't know their own results at the time. And we did some performance tests at the start of the training period, performance tests at the end. Um, and in the uh, in the end, actually, when we looked at those results, in the genetically matched group, they had, on average, about threefold um, performance improvement in their performance tests compared to those that were mismatched. So it's the first time there'd ever been a genetically guided exercise intervention study published and a really encouraging start to say, well, hopefully, if you know this stuff and you can use this to change the way you go about reaching your goal, you can get a little bit better a little bit quicker, basically, mm -hmm. that, that's the idea. And the same is borne out through nutrition as well. So how, how can people stick to this stuff? Can they get better results in not just the short term, but can they adhere to this in the long term better? Genetic data appears to support that in terms of increasing behavior change and making that behavior change stick for a longer period of time.
So I guess when people see it and they understand what their results are, they're more likely to be compliant with the advice because yeah. they kind of know yeah, what's yeah. there. So it's almost like I'd almost move away from even the, the sort of the compliance. It's actually like they suddenly have a specific internal motivation as to why, as mm. opposed to following a program. So it's like it, it shifts it from someone told me this is good, so I will do that because I believe then this is good to say, well, actually, I know that I'm made this way, so I'm going to eat more broccoli than the next person yeah. because I need to get an enzyme that I'm not creating on the genetic level and I can get it through this food, as opposed to saying eat broccoli, it's good for you. Yeah, okay, cool, yeah, very much so. so it's, it's less about like compliance, it's actually more about like, can you make that person understand uh, their self-motivation for making one choice over another? And the, the, I find that such a fascinating concept because it's been shown that even if you and I were both given exactly the same advice, but I understood that it was advice for me based on something to do with my DNA, a genetic reason, I'm still more likely to stick to that same advice than you, even if you were just told, do this. Yes. So, you know, so every good sports coach has ever known this is like the, the player or the athlete needs to understand the why behind what they're doing. They need that mm. purpose, that reasoning internally as opposed to just being prescribed something. And yes, as a coach, sure. that's such an important tool to have mm. with people you're working with, you know. Well, actually, on the nutrition side, because mm. you mentioned that, let's go there next, because yeah. I find that is so powerful, very powerful for me. Um, you know, I had I was diagnosed with PCOS mm. actually in my 20s yeah, right. and had to have quite extensive surgery. And yes. at the time, I didn't realize I knew that there was a very strong family history of diabetes on, on both sides. And I was prescribed metformin, told I had insulin resistance. And actually, when I tested my genetics, they showed with DNA fit, they showed that I had a very, very high, like the highest level sensitivity to carbs. Yeah, right. Now, yeah. since controlling that, I don't have PCOS anymore, yeah. amazingly. Yeah. And I don't, although I've got like the, isn't it the FTO is dubbed the fat so gene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a double copy of that, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you can probably tell I'm not um, obese. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting because I've very much aligned my diet with my genetics. Mm. And actually, that is then F because I don't have to really work hard then to stay in yeah, a good yeah. body composition. Yeah. And yeah. knowing that has improved, which has massive benefits for women in terms of fertility as well, yeah, potentially. Because yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. we know that, you know, when insulin's high, then that affects lutensing hormone and affects mm -hmm. ovulation. And so, mm. um, but similarly as well, we know that some people may not be suitable for the ketogenic diet, for example. And I'll see people that say, you know, my husband's getting amazing results. Why am I not seeing results on this diet? And actually mm. their genetics indicate that they don't process saturated fats in quite the same yeah. way. And yeah. can yeah. you talk a bit about that and how yeah. people can really personalize their nutrition? So the, the, you know, the concept I gave before is sort of what exercise trends were 30 years ago versus today, we can very much talk about the same in nutrition, especially when it comes to like, should we eat less carbs or less fat or both or mm. neither or what, what, what's the current trend? There's, there's nothing more temporal <laughs> than nutrition trends, right? They could have come mm. and go yeah, and all these do. things and they, they're cyclical, they come back around again. It's really hard to keep track of. So um, the example I often use is the cover of Time magazine from 1984, which basically said, don't eat any fat, that will kill you, that will make you die early and make you unwell and fat. Um, but do eat plenty of grains, carbs, they're, they're healthy, they're good for you, you can eat plenty of that. The food pyramid at the time, right? And, uh, and then the same authority, so the front cover of the Time magazine in 2014, I think, was said, eat butter. And it basically flipped the whole thing on its head, right? And, yeah. you know, and that's, it's still right for them to report that. Uh, but the, the fact is, that's a complete polar opposite of what 
considered good advice was before and we know there's lots of factors to that there were some political factors around the use of corn subsidies and so on mm. but and um, there's a, a complete spectrum what we consider sort of healthy eating from reducing calories through not having too much fat specifically around saturated fat then saying okay what about if we um have lots of low glycemic index carbs but we don't have much fat and then in between that there's kind of intermittent fasting and sort of middle grounds of doing these two things and then there's also going as as, as extreme as ketogenic zero carbohydrate impact loads of fat to make mm. up for that um and none of them are necessarily wrong right they're, they're, they're there they definitely they definitely work people definitely do them and have great experiences but inter-individually it's the people have very different experiences mm. where they're effective whether they can stick to them how how they feel so what we're doing is basically we can look at two macronutrient groups really response to refined carbohydrates response to saturated fats the genetic factors which we know might play a role in exacerbating some of that response or not so the tcf7l2 gene and its role in assimilation of glucose from your food into glucose in your blood yeah. and the rate at which we do that so if you've got the higher sensitivity there we help people know well you know what i might need to be a little bit more careful than the next person from this amount of refined carbohydrates compared to them uh, or vice versa with sort of our fats so we might say yeah i've got the aa genotype of the fto gene that like you mentioned and mm. um, when I have fat intake, that might have a certain impact on me that someone without that AA genotype might not have as much of a pronounced impact. So we just try to use it to then say, well, when we're giving a slice of our plate away to this food group, how big or small do I think about making Should that slice be? of the plate? And this is really simple stuff, right? You know, you, can, mm. you could take this advice and be given it anyway, but we've been given good nutritional advice for 30, 40 years and it's still not really helped. So adding this extra layer of why and understanding you know, from person to person the differences appears to be quite effective, like your case. Mm. You, know, you probably heard at the time before you'd done this that to manage PCOS, it was really sensible to have a low GI diet. Yeah, right? exactly, that's but what I did. Could you, could you find a, a true reason to stick to that? You know, mm. And that's really hard to do so. Then later on being going, oh, this is why for me specifically, I might need to be super strict on this mm. glycemic index stuff that's where you can get to that adherable like long-term change so it's quite, yeah, it's quite sure. a powerful tool I'd say. I think yeah. it's really powerful because as you say the motivation it gives the person the why so suddenly you're like well you're not even really necessarily tempted by high glycemic foods because I mean I never really had a sweet tooth which has been lucky oh, yeah, but, lucky. <laughs> um, I know the damage that it can do mm. quite quickly mm -hmm. so I'm very aware of that yeah. um, but it's like you were saying as well with eating more broccoli we know that if people don't produce an enzyme yeah. then these cruciferous vegetables can do that for them yeah. um, and again I'll say to my clients we'll make sure we're including more of these foods and that's again very powerful right mm -hmm. it's protecting them even more so against things like cancer which is ever increasingly more common as well yeah um but you've since gone on from DNA Fit now to um, merge or be taken over by Prenetics and produce Circle, yes. which is another product in its own right and quite an advanced product. That's right, yeah. So we started DNA Fit back in 2013, grew the product to a certain level. Um, and then in 2018, we joined a bigger group called Prenetics. Um, part of that gave us the ability to start to offer this, which is using what's called whole exome sequencing. So people are sort of a very simple lesson in what that means when you look at a dna test you can do sort of about four levels of that you can look for one very specific variant in one gene 
and offer that. That might be if I offered you a test to say, are you lactose intolerant or not? I'd mm -hmm. look at one very specific address on your DNA and see what letters have we got there? And I'd say, this means you're lactose tolerant or intolerant because of this particular change in these two letters. Um, then the next step up is, is a sort of a series of those. Um, so lots and lots of these genotype variations. And that's where DNA fit is. So basically we look at um, many, many hundred sort of genetic variants that we know have passed a certain threshold around fitness, nutrition, stress and sleep. Um, and then the next level up is something called whole exome sequencing. So this is where you'll actually look at every single part of what's called the, the active or the protein coding part of the human genome. Um, and that basically means it's every part that has a role to play, has some activity. Uh, and then we add in uh, about 25,000 or so other extra variations to help us build the product. And it's led us to this, the circle basically. And this is um, quite remarkable really because this laboratory technology, the tests we do to make Circle reality that we sell for you know a few hundred quid or so nowadays, if we'd done exactly the same test about 15 years ago, it would have cost in excess of a million dollars per person <laughs> to do. So laboratory technology has become outrageously cheaper than it used mm. to be. There's been ridiculous advances in the competency and the ability of that technology to make it suddenly accessible. So what we did is we launched Circle as um is actually the, the world's most comprehensive DNA test, we call it. So basically we can report on 500 different traits, 500 different genetic reports um, across 20 categories. And that ranges from, I guess, the fun to know stuff, like, hey, I've got propensity to have average curlier hair than the next person, um, to the middle ground, which is around fitness and nutrition and actually lifestyle disease management. So relative risk of type 2 diabetes versus the next person, relative risk of um, other sort of lifestyle and chronic diseases. And then up to the serious end, which is actually the clinical end of the genetic spectrum. So look at predisposition to cancer, um, a group of 36 cancers, um, other sort of neurological conditions as well. Um, so yeah, it can be, uh, really span that whole spectrum of what's possible to learn from your DNA. To give people an example of how advanced this is, there's a couple of other sort of, you know, more commonly known companies in this space out there already, companies like 23andMe, Ancestry DNA, and they'll offer health reports around certain cancers, for example. Um, but to do that, they'll look at about 600,000 data points and do a lot of that genotyping array we mentioned before, specific variant search, basically. Circle looks at about 31 million, so there's about 50 wow. times more data in there, which allows for the rate of accuracy to be a lot higher. The risk of false positive and false negatives is a lot lower because we're not just looking for one specific variant when it comes to something like cancer, we're sequencing the entire gene. Um, okay. And that, that's the power of it, really. We can be more accurate and more comprehensive than ever before, still actually at an accessible amount of money for someone that cares mm. about their health. Yeah, very. I mean, I, I've done it. It's very, very interesting for me. So, great. unfortunately, I didn't have cancer risk genes, oh, which was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was reassuring. Mm. But people can take steps, right, to live a healthier lifestyle if they yeah. know that they. That's the thing is, it's all the epigenetics, isn't it? It doesn't mean you will get it. It's like how can we positively influence our mm. expression? That's it. Which yeah, I think's powerful. So that healthy um, lifestyle change is the is the key, right? And mm. you know, so in and even in conditions where there's been no sort of proven benefit to a healthy lifestyle, let's say Alzheimer's risk. Um, evidence shows actually that still people still engage in a healthier lifestyle once they learn their Alzheimer's risk from a genetic test, for example. Um, because actually I think there's a tendency for us as a society to be a bit too paternalistic. I think, well, does someone want to know this? But actually so far we've found people want to know and they're ready to know. And what we do do is actually, and it's important, um, is that we don't just give this information and that's it. And so we, as part of the package, they get to speak 
speak to a qualified genetic counselor about all their medical risk stuff, a dietitian about all their health stuff, and a sports scientist about their fitness stuff. So there's a kind of um, this level of support. This is going to happen. People are gonna want to access this data no matter what. It's not gonna go backwards. We aren't gonna be able to say, yeah, you can't see about your own DNA anymore. What we do need to do is offer them the chance to do that most, in the most accurate way possible, but also with the best qualified support possible included in it. So that's what we did yes. in the circle. Yeah, yeah the, support, the support's great actually, because I interestingly do have one copy of the APOE mm. for, so I am And how do you risk. feel about learning that? Well, I found it empowering. So I'm kind of working my way now through Dr. Dale Bredesen's book, who's okay. kind of one of the authorities right, on Alzheimer's, yeah, yeah. and actually making changes. Yeah. And I'm going to be sharing that content soon oh, on how you can really, you know, take lifestyle measures to really try and protect yourself. Mm. Also, my risk of stroke came up higher, mm. um, heart disease, which wasn't mm. a surprise with the fat. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. unfortunate, right? I don't process <laughs> fats or carbs particularly well. I, I, <laughs> so see, I still think so, it's almost like there's no but, bad news, right? Because yeah. if you can. You know, if you know, for example, you obviously live a very healthy lifestyle, yeah. right? Nutrition, exercise-wise. So that whether you've got a raised risk for heart disease or not, mm. if you've taken the right sort of environment change steps, the, the chances are for you that's like dramatically reduced yes. because of what you've done. Yes. And so that's the way I just try to see this. And there's definitely, you know, it's definitely a question. People have to feel that they are ready to learn this stuff. And, mm. um, you know, that's not necessarily for us to say if the end user's choice is there to learn that. But if you do feel like, hey, I, I want to know so I can make these changes or be ready, then the opportunity is there to do that well. And I think you know, in your case, you're, you're saying, okay, so. have, you've got one copy of APA4. And, you know, okay, now you know that can I do more research? Can I learn about this? What might be on the radar about what they'll know in the future? Yes, you know, and, that, and that's exactly. where, that's where that, I guess, like hopefully that interaction between available data uh, now versus like, you know, potential discoveries in the future becomes really powerful because you know, okay, I might be at raised risk. So let me take care of everything I possibly could around that. Yeah. If you don't know, you don't know, right? So you don't know what you yeah, don't exactly. know, and that's it. So, and it does yeah. make you more conscious, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, you, will, yeah. you know, think twice. I mean, I live a healthy lifestyle anyway, but yeah, as you say, there's um, there's some fun stuff in here as well because I found out that I have. Um, I'm gifted in mathematics, <laughs> which is a bit of a surprise, and also music and dance. What's the, um, that was a great excuse for me to carry on doing karaoke with Alexa, much to my kids' disappointment. But mum's gifted, she yeah. just needs more practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so what's the evidence around that? Because yeah. it's fun, but... Um, so these are from what's called like um, genome-wide association studies, basically, okay. where they take, let's say we took a thousand people, yeah. and we do a huge amount of um, genetic data on them all, and we just get that and then we study a series of phenotypes so other things about them so you know obviously when it comes to like the serious medical stuff that's the stuff which has the highest threshold of evidence because there's been more research done over the years that's rightly been funded more you know no one's really wanting to pour billions of dollars into uh, ability to match musical pitch right <laughs> you know yeah. but the research has been there and done so what we do is basically we give this whole spectrum obviously it's some of these um more fun to know insight ends there's a slightly lesser threshold of how much evidence there's been published but the way they work is basically say well let's say they took a thousand people studied all these traits they find what are the um, statistically genome-wide significant um, correlations we could find when people have this selection of genetic variants they also scored the highest on this particular test if that was musical pitch matching or 
wetter than average earwax or whatever oh, yeah. that is. There's all sorts <laughs> of stuff in there. And you know, this isn't going to change your life. It's not going to give you any utility really, oh, yeah. but it's a voyage of self-discovery. It's your DNA. You may as well know what those variants are associated with in the research. So, you know, some of that you might find, um, you know, actually has a utility to you in some way and say, well, you know what? Yeah, I've always wanted to do this. So I'm going to, going to try this new skill or whatever, maybe. But the truth is, you know, genetics is only one part of the picture as with everything. Yeah. Um, you know, and if I don't think it's going to, you know, necessarily turn someone who could never sing before into a world-class singer, <laughs> you know, just by learning sure this stuff. sure I won't be on Strictly by next set Well, that's, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's <laughs> down to you, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. But, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's some interesting stuff in there. And I, I think around like behavioral traits as well in terms of like, you know, are you, like you know like the, the kind of there's entrepreneurial behavior traits that have been observed yes, and studied as well and but, you know this stuff's not going to change your health right you know yeah. it's not but it but it just is it's worthwhile knowing there's no um there's no harm in knowing that and it might just sort of switch a certain mindset when it comes to you know what how you set your goals how you try and achieve mm. those goals as well well, on both of the tests, mm. you talk a bit in them about stress as well, yeah. stress management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's interesting. Um, it only confirmed. What I found with these, interestingly, is that they tend to confirm. There were a few surprises. Like obviously, I could never predict whether I had APOE4 or not. Yeah, How would yeah, I know? Yeah, yeah. But what I... Um, I don't have memory problems yet. But um, <laughs> what I didn't... What, some of it, I think, was intuitive to me. So, for example... I know that I naturally wake up very early. So mm. when I was told I was a morning person based on genetics, mm. which is kind of very heavily sort of chronotyped, yeah, isn't it? It's yeah, genetically yeah. based. That wasn't a surprise. Similarly, I probably don't have a strong perception of stress and mm. I am a bit of a thrill seeker and that again came up. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I know yeah. that, but in someone else who maybe does have um, a higher perception of stress, then they can take lifestyle practices and maybe include more meditation, more mindfulness so that they can manage their stress better because they know that, from my understanding is it's looking at, we could both be in the same situation, but maybe one of us will perceive that as a higher stress event than the other because we deal with pressure differently. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that and how people yeah. might use that information? So there's about five sort of major categories around that. So, you know, sort of chronic overall stress tolerance or resilience, um, acute performance under pressure when it comes to stress okay. and, and the way you uh, respond and prepare for that um, so your overall body clock chronotype so your uh, um, morning or evening person as you mentioned um, how caffeine interacts with sleep uh, and then also actually whether you're predisposed to be more of a deeper or light sleeper than the next person but it's very interesting when it comes to stress management right because it's it's you know it's become it's become very trendy it's become you know mindfulness has become an everyday word for most mm. people back when I was a sports person we used to do this as sort of part of our preparation and visualization and recovery before anyone had even heard of it right and um, and now it's every day because there's some really amazing apps out there from mm. Headspace the Calm etc the truth is we all know ideally I should do 20 minutes of meditation every day and if I'm stressed I should take 10 minutes to go and do this emergency stuff And but again like with nutrition habits we know good advice but we can't stick to it we can't mm. choose what to prioritise if we all tried to do everything all the time from eating every bit of dark green leafy veg doing every brightly coloured healthy antioxidant rich fruit and vegetable to lean meat percentage at a different amount and then our mindfulness on top of that and the it's just very hard, right? So what we're able to do with this is look at how does someone's genetic profile perhaps increase their, um, I guess, response to a stressful stimuli or chronic stress buildup over time 
they could then potentially prioritize or proactively try to manage that stress with things like mindfulness meditation mm. earlier than the next person or vice versa if you ah, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit better for that maybe I can focus my you know time on something else focus my energy on something else and same when it comes to sleep and your chronotype so it might be saying well I've always felt better in the evenings than I do in the mornings. Um, then having that confirmed, say, well, genetically speaking, I've got a, a, a sort of a later circadian rhythm because of this genetic chronotype. So you know what, I'm really gonna try and schedule where I can certain analytical heavy tasks later in the day, certain workouts that mm. might require a certain level of intensity later in the day to get the best out of myself and just focus. So it's just, it's just again, one extra layer of information, not changing everything not changing your goal but just changing how you might reach that goal for you uh, yeah that, absolutely that's the way it works yeah and that's interesting in itself isn't it because when you look at the kind of 24-hour clock mm. we know that people might have say greater coordination or greater strength in the in the afternoon but we were talking before we started recording about how you might bring that forward because i know for me for example i am an early morning type and if that workout isn't done by latest 2 p.m. is probably never going to happen because <laughs> okay. my energy is starting to drop off a cliff. Motivation's gone. Motivation's <laughs> yeah, gone. Whereas if yeah. I do it in the morning and I get great results, um, it's actually better. And again, that's that's useful to know, right? Yeah. Because I can change the structure of my day a little bit. Um, so there's good, re that, you know, people have done a lot of research on um, times of day and certain mm. performance factors. So if it comes to sport, there and there's some fact, and I don't know the, the, the exact details, like something around like no world record has ever been set before midday or something in any event ever, for some reason yeah. apart. And because of, uh, you know, um, I'm sure there's plenty of exceptions, but generally speaking, I guess hormonal activities higher for power right. events, for example, endurance events might be able to earlier in the day. So marathons and run earlier for weather reasons but there's probably an extra benefit there too but we know there's a kind of there is a circadian rhythm and we know that there's um a way to sort of take advantage of that body clock for performance that's um you know been borne out through elite sport studies for years and time and time again we also know there's a genetic factor to that so what we had without knowing the genetics was the average so the average advice would be in the afternoon do this in the morning do this in the evening do this right but then how might those windows just shift from person to person and if we know the genetic chronotype we can look at where they shift for you and then hopefully shift that particular onus that we're going to put on our body at that time in line with that so you're saying you're very much a morning person you knew that already and if you found out that you know actually yeah, i've got a particular um exercise task i've got to do at this time of day you've found it through trial and error I'll, I'll, I feel better doing that earlier you know if you hadn't had the luxury of trial and error and you were thinking well actually I'm going to do that after work I'm going to do this at a certain point in the afternoon we might say well just because you've got this morning chronotype why don't you try it a little bit earlier see how you feel and that, that's sort of that's where it comes in just to say that again an extra facet to this decision making to say well I know a little bit more about myself um, I'm a night owl I'm very much like an evening person I, I okay. know that for sure almost none of my work in the office gets done before like 4 p.m. Really I just somehow can't engage in it um, because I guess I've just got a different level of hormonal activity earlier in the day and later in the day. So were your work, when you were an athlete as well, mm. were your workouts, did you tend to structure your training that much later in the yeah, day? Yeah, I trained at 7 p.m. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, Whereas I'd be yeah, like, the yeah. most I could do at that <laughs> point is yoga. <laughs> yeah. So the, you see what happened with me is there's three phases of like peak, trough and rebound, I think, when it comes to this of so using your circadian rhythm and the about your know, high intensity stuff during the peak and the rebound sort of very low intensity restorative stuff and then trough like literally like rest um, but 
at a certain point in my career, I had to train in the mornings because of like coaches availability or whatever. And if you looked at me in the training group then, you would not have thought I was the Olympic medalist out of that lot. You know, I was awful mm. in the morning. And my race in Beijing, I mean, my first opening race was at 9.30 a.m. So actually for about a month in advance, I started getting up at like 4 a.m just to force that sort of oh, circadian rhythm change, you know, like you were dealing with the time zone. It's just hard if you're it was a hard work. Yeah, really it was hard, hard work, but um, I did well in the end. But then the problem was my semi-final was at 10.30 p.m. the next day, so I was like dead oh, by the time that came around. But, yeah. So like, yeah, again, like, Genetics is not everything. It will not tell you suddenly, right, I'm not gonna do any work in the morning, I'm not gonna do any exercise in the morning because mm. of this, but it might just help you shift that window of normal or average one way or the other once you know a little bit more about Just yourself. to give you the edge. That's it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, and these small cumulative changes can add up to something quite big. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And so it, between the two tests, if mm -hmm. people were looking at it, who are they kind of geared at? Obviously, there's a price difference. Yeah. Um, the, the reports in the DNA Fit Test, I think, are very, very usable. Mm -hmm. And you get a fitness program that yep. you can try out with it and diet plans that, that's not with the circle. Mm -hmm. um, how, what, who are they geared at and how might people use them? So I guess, you know, we've... Um uh, we've had a little bit more time to uh, to make DNA fit, you know, the the more complete sort of user journey, I guess, as a you know, as a product person. That's that we've spent many years refining this. Circle's newer, so it's a little bit less of of that sort of um, infrastructure following on. So DNA fit, we're really focused on. If you want to know just about your fitness, nutrition, and stress and sleep, this test will do that for you at a lower entry price point, and will provide. A lot more of that sort of um, there's a you know an exercise system in there, there's a meal planning system in there. If you want to know more about your health, possibly that's going to you know, be a piece of data which will really last you throughout all the stages of your life. When mm. it comes to suddenly you're a little bit older and you want to know about your cancer predisposition, or you want to know about disease risk later in life, you want to start thinking about that. Um, then Circle's the one for you. And actually, we're really putting a lot of effort on Circle. We're probably going to help try to shift the underlying laboratory technology to sort of the Circle whole exome infrastructure for every product we do, including DNA Fit eventually, okay. uh, and also provide the follow-on stuff within Circle too. So, you know, I see this as um, we're all one, we're all one, one product really. There's just different iterations of that currently. So, if you care about long-term health, you've got a goal that's um, you know about proactively managing health for, for the whole of your life. It's probably something at Circle. It's a little bit more expensive, but that data set, that whole exome, you will never need to do another DNA test again ever no matter what you want to learn. So will you get, you yeah. get updates with Circle? As yeah, you release right. more, yeah. that will be included. Because we're able to look at so much data, 31 million data points. Yeah. It, doesn't, it means no matter what would be discovered, We've already You've got, got it. it. Yeah, and we can turn that on for you. You know, and that's. And how that's many data there. points are they there with the DNA fit? So we actually look at about, I think about 150 variants in DNA fit. Mm -hmm. um, also, if we're doing a pro fit, which is the one with obesity risk and bone mineral density as well, probably about 500 or so variants, um, stand corrected, in DNA fit, and then 31 million in this. So yeah, it's just a, a so this is very focused. They, those variants, the ones which have met a very high evidence threshold, we know their function, we know the activity of these particular genetic variants, and they play that role they're just included in this because when it comes to the medical stuff we need a lot more data so it's not that this needs more data in dna fit products no, okay. it's just it's just that to give the cancerous stuff 
the serious clinical categories, we need to look at a lot more data. A lot more. Yeah. So for somebody though who, for example, wants to know what's the right diet, and mm -hmm. I think everyone should personalize their nutrition, yeah. then the DNA Fit one's going to yeah. be perfect. That's or right. if somebody's like a younger person who's maybe doing athletics mm -hmm. at school and wants to understand how they might get the edge on their performance, yeah. then again, that's a very good test to be doing. That's right, yeah. Um, so I think if, you're, if your goal's there, you know, that like, I'm just starting out, I want to know some information, let me get started. DNA fits a great entry point for that. And you can always, you know, upgrade later upgrade and we later. can get to the next stage. If you've got a slightly wider goal, saying like, I really want to be healthy for the rest of my life. I really want to know all this stuff and I want to have that available to me for a long, long time. I think the whole XM sequencing is probably worth the investment at this stage yes. because you'll then have that forever. And good for parents as well. I know like my husband's about to do it and actually then between us, we know what we've passed mm. to our children, don't we? Well, there's certain so things, that's yeah. That's interesting. There's certain um, sort of carrier conditions or mm. do you carry particular mutations that might have a chance of affecting, you know, any future children's health. Um, that's important to know at this stage, for example. Mm. Um, and that would only be possible with this technology. With And also um, how to use drugs. I think what came mm. up on mine was if you had a stroke or a heart attack, a certain type of drug might be better for you than another one. Where mm. do you see this going? Because this could end up actually extremely empowering. I mean, it already is empowering for, for individuals, yeah. but even more so to be able to actually take, you know, I like to kind of teach people to become the CEO of their health, if you like. Yeah, this good. is really like empowering people, isn't it? To understand more about their health the steps they can take to prevent it and then also how treatment protocols might work mm -hmm. better where do you see all this technology going what's so, in the future so in, I, I see in a very like much shorter term than we'd probably even expect is that you know using the the big sort of three or four technology companies at some point we will nearly all of us have a, a very large swathe of our genomic data just stored in our smartphone under our apple health kit or mm. google health kit and just able to dis sort of distribute that to an app or to an application, a utility, um, as and when we need for interpretation. So really what I see is that what will happen is, you know, we will have as part of our electronic health record that we hopefully we own, we control. Um, here's my whole exome sequence. Oh, okay, let me just release what data this particular application needs to tell me if I can metabolize this particular prescription drug better than the next person or if I need a different starting dose or if my particular risk of this condition is higher or not. So I can see on a sort of societal health level, hopefully, we no longer just look at just the average and we actually give that as a sort of person to person piece of advice or at least stratifying people into groups. So for example, there's I think 150 or so um, prescription drugs that we know of that your genetic interaction with those drugs may change whether that starting dose is should be higher should be used with caution or maybe should be avoided altogether mm. because adverse drug reactions are also possible uh, and we can look at that and things that you don't consider like you know even things are just simple pain relief or you know, anti-inflammatories mm. that people don't realize um, depending on your genetic profile, you could actually be needing a little bit more of those or less as directed by a doctor or pharmacist or, but that we can, we can tell you about how your genetics can interact with that. Um, and I can just see in the future when we interact with our health, we should hopefully have this data about ourselves ready to deploy with whoever necessary to get better advice. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I guess the last question I have is some people are nervous, right? Mm. All this data exists. I yeah. know that you guys have very, very high standards in terms of protecting data. 
Can you kind of yeah. reassure people and explain how that works? And should they be at all concerned that suddenly there is this data around so they've had the whole it's episode? A, it's sequence. a big, big need of our users, and it's something that we've seen from the very start, right? And um, so one thing I would always say is people, when they think of data use now, they're always scarred a little bit by the way non-health companies have used their data elsewhere. Mm. So Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, for example, um, didn't handle the data in a particularly strict way. That led to all sorts of negative consequences. And it also led to everybody to then be really um, on edge about how companies are using their data, right? Uh, but you've got to remember, when you're a healthcare company, or you work in this space, from your very core when you first start, your data has to be secure. Like it, it, it can't not be because it's people's personal sort of health data. When mm. it comes to genomics, like if you were to try and start a genomics company that didn't have secure infrastructure and systems from the start, you would never get very far, right? So, whereas if you're a social media company or a social network that just lets people put photos up for public sharing, of course they didn't have that security mm. at their at their core. So thankfully we did from the very start, from the ground up we were built that way. And that's borne out by, we were the first, um, direct consumer genomics company to achieve something called ISO 27001, which is the international gold standard framework for information security and management systems. The way the systems are built is that um, no one particular database is, uh, has like actually people's personal identifier information and might just have the genomic data, which is um, pseudonymized, it's called, and then their individual data is somewhere else and their other customer data is somewhere else. So there's, we have very complex, serious um, systems and we adhere to this sort of highest level and we've been certified for that we continue to be so what i say is people are rightly concerned about that it's a big um question that customers ask thankfully from the ground up we've had that at our core mm. um and it will always be managed with the seriousness that a piece of data like this deserves mm. other than when people think of other companies that have just been managing something like yeah whether you show a photo of your friend to another friend they obviously have very different yeah, approaches and ethos sure. when it comes to data use. So we take that super seriously. We have a serious uh, infrastructure for that. Um, and of course, like, you know, people can actually look us up um, elsewhere independently with the ISO board about our certification as well for that. So it's, yeah, it's mm. very well protected. Yeah, well, look, we take um, every step possible for that and we, yeah. we will continue to do so at all times. Yeah, amazing. And I think, I think the, uh, the benefits, as we say, of kind of learning how to take charge of your health are just so immense um so yeah good no no glad to give some insight into <laughs> into the world yeah. of, of genetics and health there over everything so now like i said for, for us it's about can we shine a light on on nature so we can better personalize our nurture whether that's something that's as um easy to to ascertain as changing our exercise habits whether something um, longer term in terms of managing our cancer risk or disease risk in different conditions. Yeah, that was brilliant. Thank you so much Thanks for coming so much, on and yeah. sharing Cheers, all of that. Thank, Thank you very you. much. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Now, most people that do a DNA test absolutely love finding out the information about themselves, but they're unsure what to do with their results and how to practically apply the information. And it's the application that's the most important. With the right guidance, you can transform the way you eat, move and sleep for best results. And the best way to do this is to buy a DNA Pro Fit test, which includes full reports on diet, nutritional needs, 
fitness, sleep, stress, plus two further bonus reports on bone density and obesity that are only available through an authorized practitioner like myself. The ProFit is a unique test. It's not available on DNA Fit's website and you do need to go through a practitioner like myself. And if you buy the DNA ProFit test through me, you will also receive a 30-minute consultation with me personally where I will walk you through your results in detail. And as a listener of this podcast, you will also get a cool 15% off if you use code ANGELA15. All you need to do is go to www.mydnaedge.com, order your DNA Pro Fit test and enter code ANGELA15 at checkout. We ship all over the world and all consultations are done over Zoom. So head over to www.mydnaedge.com now and order your test with ANGELA15 at checkout out and let's start your transformation thanks for listening remember to review and subscribe you can grab the show notes the resources and highlights of everything angela mentioned over at angelafosterperformance.com you can also snatch up plenty of other goodies including the highly helpful angela recommends page which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind body and lifestyle 